Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So, hey, uh, Ted and Jen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. We're excited. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show. I um, I think it was what? Oh, it's over a year ago that we met, right? And it was you, Ted, yeah. who I met first. Yeah. So it was at a um a consultant training I do, and um I was kind of immediately struck by the fact that I run into very few people who do the same kind of financial work that I do as a consultant, and you were one of them. Yeah, I was struck by it, too, because I've actually spent quite a bit of time trying to find other people to, at the very least, commiserate with or right. have not in that kind of compare notes, and it was great to be able to talk to somebody that was doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. So we'll back up, and why don't you talk a bit about your firm, KTC, and what you do? So KTC was founded in uh, 2013, 2012, as an outgrowth from a small consulting company that I started in 2009. Jen and I joined forces with the desire to help food and farm-related businesses, you know, improve, improve their businesses, improve the community, and, and just generally help entrepreneurs in the food community do better. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, work in five different areas. We help people with their accounting and bookkeeping. We help people with their marketing strategy and execution, leadership development strategy, which includes finance, you know, finding financing and turnarounds, and then education. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we do group sessions of education together. Jen, you probably can add to that better than I can. She's the real marketing powerhouse behind Kitchen Table. Yeah, I think, we, you know, the heart of our firm is really based on one-on-one coaching and the kind of work that you had just described, Tara, which has solo consulting practice. He's really helping entrepreneurs be successful on their own terms, and that means being financially successful and resilient. And as our firm grew... Our work grew in that we started to to work with organizations that were also providing support, right? So technical service providers, uh, nonprofit organizations, government agencies, economic development groups that were working in support of farmers, strengthening the local food system, and working with value-added producers, et cetera. So we've sort of broadened our work to also include helping those organizations provide meaningful technical assistance to their clients as well. Right. And you, I mean, you, you mentioned that you were starting this thing through the, the last great recession here. So that must have been a fun startup. For me, I had uh, just finished doing a turnaround on a, on a large public company's division and was fortunate enough to have a severance package after finishing that turnaround. Nice. And Good time to have I, a severance. Yeah, exactly. And except that my wife said, well, you're going to go get a job, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, right. You're not going <laughs> to anyway. sit here and bug me all day. No. Right. I'm not going to get a job. I got a severance package. But we, we uh, uh, and I've got to be careful because this is being recorded and she may listen to it. We had an agreement huh. that for every, I forget how many dollars of consulting work I got to extend my severance. And well, that oh. was a little over 10 years ago. So <laughs> it, was, it was definitely interesting to start that in the recession, but it was 
I think it was actually doubly interesting because what I found were the CEOs, these business owners who were small to mid-sized businesses up to 35 people, but just needed somebody that they could talk to and yeah. understood what the trials and tribulations mm-hmm. were. So I just built a small group of people that I saw on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And, and there was and, a and lot they of, appreciate it. Yeah, and I bet it was a lot of turnaround stuff at the at that time. It was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of turnaround. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing quite as horrible as running a business when, and at that time, you know, I was in a CEO group at that time because that was when I started Tara's Way. And, um, like, we would go to these meetings and there'd be 10 of us there, and every single one of them was like, well— I don't know what's going on because our sales are just dropping off a cliff and we have never seen anything like it. Like the 2008, 2009 was really bad. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So you started then and then Jen came on and you've broadened the portfolio of your work. Um, One of the things that I really like about what you do is that, um, you know, when I was running a business and consultants would come in and then tell me what I should be doing, I would be looking at them and then they'd go away, right? And I'd be like, okay, how in the hell am I going to implement that? And what I like about you guys is that you help people implement. Yeah, that's the that's the third tenet of our organization is, is that we, you know, we roll up our sleeves right alongside you. It doesn't do you any good for us to give you some fancy plan that you spend a lot of money on and then not be able to do it. Mm-hmm. That's been really critically important to, to, to everybody on our team mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Right. So, so maybe you could share some examples of companies or farms where you've been working and how you do that. One of the farms, these are case studies on our website, so I'm not talking out of school. One of the farms that I worked with early on was an organization called the Family Cow, and they are a sixth-generation dairy mm. uh, based out in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And they had amassed a significant amount of losses and death, but didn't really quite understand how that had happened. Mm-hmm. And so I literally jumped in, you know, it, you know, I was out there, that's about three hours from our offices. I was out there once a month for half a day, and then every week at 5 a.m. in the morning, and we were literally doing a screen share uh, looking through their financials, rebuilding their financials. It was a, the father was the fifth generation. Edwin, a few years younger than I am, maybe 50 now. And Roderick is, was at the time was 18, probably six years ago. And we, I literally rolled up my sleeves with them, helped them rebuild their financials, mm. helped them understand how the financials work. But a lot of what I was doing was training Edwin and Roderick. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't just me doing it, it was me. Can't, you know, one of our sayings is that, you know, we, feed, we teach people how to fish, not just give them the fish. And so it was, a, it was an ongoing, and I think I worked with them for probably close to three years. I talked to them about once a year now. They, they went from losing a very significant amount of money and having no idea how they were losing it to making a significant amount of money. And, you know, they served 1,200, well, this is a few years ago, but they served 1,200 families in Pennsylvania. Oh, my goodness. With, with local food and everything from raw milk to eggs to meat to kefir to all kinds of stuff in there. They've got an online ordering system. And it was, you know, that, that business, they went organic uh, uh-huh. a few years earlier than, than I got there. They had no idea why, you know, they believed in the organic mm-hmm. the direction they're going, but they had no idea what was going on financially. Right. So we rolled up our sleeves and, and, worked, and just jumped right in and worked with them. That's fantastic. That's, that's, that's an example of a farm. Yeah. I could give you some other examples, but so, that's a good example of a farm. So did they do the dairy themselves? Were they processing? 
Oh yeah, mm-hmm. okay. but it was also raw. It was also raw milk. It was raw, yeah. Uh-huh. So they were they were they were you know pro- they were processing it cleanly. They were doing lab tests, uh-huh. but there was no pasteur- no pasteurization. They right. were just putting in bottles. Right, right. Yeah, sadly, here in Wisconsin, you can't do that. Um, Pennsylvania is so wise because it's that's such a great um, product line to keep a farm going um so they and did they have vegetables and a whole bunch of other things or were they like aggregating from other farms or was that all from their farm oh no 60 percent of what they now sell is aggregation from other farms nice yeah. cool they, they produce their own milk a good portion of their own beef mm-hmm. anything dairy poultry and egg but mm-hmm. then everything else they're buying from everybody else mm-hmm. from other farms in the area mm-hmm Cool. So that was one of your first projects? Yep. Yep. And what about like more of a straight food example? I'm still working with a co-packer, uh-huh. a value-added co-packer. They were $5 million in sales in 2017 mm-hmm. and lost $400,000. Mm, that would be a fun and, number to lose. Yeah. In fact, they had lost more the previous year. Uh-huh. So I was I came in and, and basically became part of the management. Well, not basically, I did become part of the management team. I'm a virtual CFO for them. Okay. And in January of 18, started sitting down and helping them clean up, you know, their books and understanding yeah. where they were making money and weren't making money. There was 50 people on a, on a production floor. And we instituted a job costing system, a really simple one, quite frankly, that mm-hmm. told the floor people on an hourly basis if they were or weren't achieving their goals and making money. Nice. And we went from, and, and you know, I was there once a month for a day and then mm-hmm. participated in their production meetings on a weekly basis. And then mm-hmm. did, an, did and I'm, and I did one-on-one coaching and leadership development. <clears throat> we went from making $21 per labor hour to $34 per mm. labor hour in one year. Wow. That's, that's a significant change. And the profit was on the bottom line. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Mirrored that quite well. So. Yeah, it didn't go from yeah, it went from red to black. In yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's terrific. And, and and the wonderful thing there it went the, the my favorite part of the two favorite parts of the story is <clears throat> number one we also instituted a, a production bonus for the mm-hmm. for the people on the floor, and we paid out over fifty thousand dollars in bonuses for production to people who were making minimum wage. Nice over a period of that year. Mm-hmm. And the second part is is that we had farms that were our suppliers that were stretched mm-hmm. way out. Right. And right. and and everybody's current in fact we're taking advantage of some discounts at this point. Nice. So yeah, so for translating for people stretched means that uh when a manufacturer is procuring things that they're delaying payment because they don't have enough cash. That's what that means. Yeah, so I bet there are a lot of happy people in that group. Yes, there are yeah. a lot of happy people in that yeah. group. Yeah. So now so now do you still are you still actively engaged with them or a little bit or how does that work? In this particular client, we actually took a an equity position with them mm-hmm. in exchange for uh, some work. So I have continued to be engaged. In fact, we've engaged our director of operations as a virtual sales manager there. So mm. we're more engaged at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've become somewhat of a virtual management team mm-hmm. long-term with the organization. So it's, yeah, we, and I suspect given the things that need to happen, you know, the owner was out of the country for two weeks. And in that process, there was a small disaster around the landlord and utilities. And I mm. stepped in and Solved the disaster while he was out of you know out of the country, which was mm-hmm. you know nice to have 
backup management to be able to do something like that that you can trust. So, right. I mean, that, yes, I, I suspect we'll be involved there for the next, uh, in that particular case, I'm going to guess three to five years. Right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of growth and right. change management and leadership opportunities there. Right. It is, you know, I think, I think one of the things that, that I watch businesses go through is, uh, especially the, the younger ones that we work with, is, you know, they kind of think like, okay, I'm going to get this all together, and then I'm going to have this business. I, I was talking to somebody today in, who is a brand up in the Twin Cities, and she's been at this for six, seven years, and she's profitable. Um, she's not really paying herself enough to be engaged in the business, really, and she's trying to figure out what to do, and she's like, okay, well, I got these couple plans and and she's like is it ever going to get easier to do this <laughs> and and i i find myself saying you know um it maybe it'll get less um you know when you start every problem is new but but as you're in it now you, the problems still keep, keep coming up but they're not new exactly but it never really gets easier right Tara, if it if it wasn't for people business would be very easy <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and the weather and, you know, landlords and right. There's just stuff yep. that happens that um, you just can't control. And and so you're when you when you do this virtual management team thing, I mean, I, what a great what a great asset for a company that isn't quite big enough to hire these people themselves. Right. Like yep. you got to be pretty big to have a management team that could step in when you're gone. Yep. <clears throat> if it were full time. Yeah, it's a it's a lot of it's 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 gratifying, frustrating, rewarding, and challenging mm-hmm. all at the same time. Right, right. And so Jen, um your what kind of work do you do at KTC? My work focuses in a couple of different areas. Um I work with a lot of nonprofit organizations that are working in the food and farming space. Um I work uh, with retailers um, and some larger farm operations that are going through transitions, um, opening retail. I'm more of a startup person than Mm -hmm, Ted, mm -hmm. so I enjoy, well, I enjoy startup, (laughs) Mm -hmm. theoretically, in my mind. Um, I've been involved with a lot of them throughout my career and uh, enjoy that sort of energy and helping people build teams and um, expand in that way. Um, and then from the, in terms of our nonprofit work, um, one of our first clients where we acted as an interim uh, COO and then interim executive director was a nonprofit urban farming organization in Philadelphia mm-hmm. that was going through a, a significant transition. The founding director who had been there for 30 years mm. was um, contemplating retirement. And so I spent about a year with him, helping him think through, as you know, oftentimes founders can't conceive of the organization without them. Mm-hmm. Like they just don't know what it could look like. Um, they can't necessarily see a future for it. They, um, they want it to stick around, but don't know what it could look like. So, so we spent about a year uh, helping to kind of think through that transition and ultimately um, stepped in as the executive, interim executive director. Ted, I can't remember if that was six months 
Is that Sean Rain? Yeah, I think it, was it sounds about right. So. I mean, I've worked yeah, with them about... for three years. Yeah, that's so... the problem is you worked there a long time, but yes. Right. Yeah, it was in many different capacities. And I think what we saw through that transition, um, they were they were sort of at the at sort of the top of their bubble uh, from an, an organizational perspective, from a budget perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I actually helped uh, wind back the organization, helped take it back to their sort of original, the, uh, the roots of the organization and what was most powerful about their work, mm-hmm. and then helped train up uh, a really key team member into that into that role as a permanent executive director, mm-hmm. and so um, that was I think uh, I think that we have uh, played the role of interim executive director two or three times mm-hmm. between me and Ted over the last few years. So that's a that's um, a scope of work that we that we we don't seek out very often because it's. Um, uh, all-consuming when you're when you're acting in a role like that and you're shepherding an organization through a transition, um, but it's very important work and I think best done. Uh, I think what makes it unique is that we are invested in the success of the organization, but not invested in our role. There, a permanent role, we're actually mm-hmm. trying to you know walk ourselves out of a job as quickly as we can. Um, in a way that's right for the organization. So it gives the organization sort of the breathing room to think about what the next version of the mission, of the organization, of the complexion of the of the team and the board, what that looks like. And so, um, and when you're layering in a lot of operational issues, this this organization ran a subscription service. It ran two or three farms in different cities. So um, there were a lot of organizational complexities and operational issues issues that needed to be sort of worked through during that period of time. Right. And I, I would guess that because um, just because of the timing of things that in the food system world, that the timing is about right right now that um, a lot of things have started and they're kind of getting to a place where they, the new leadership is going to be coming in. Like I, yeah. yeah. And, and, and new questions. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. No, and new questions, new, new, because there, there's also been, you know, a lot of, um, I think matured maturation of the food system movement, if you want to think of it that way, that, you know, a lot of idealism and we're going to change the world in the beginning. And then now we're in it and we're like, oh, God, <laughs> we got to actually make this work now. Right. Yeah. yeah. And also, what's the role of nonprofit organizations in the development of maturing food system? I think that's the question that. I feel like we're, we spend a lot of time sort of challenging what that looks like mm-hmm. and, and thinking about, I think what we saw, you know, 15 or 20 years ago as the local food movement really started to gain a lot of traction and a lot of nonprofit organizations were incubating businesses and new enterprises, just testing the marketplace, right? Taking those mm-hmm. risks. And then we see a whole bunch of new businesses sort of coming along behind that. And, and I think part of the big question is, is asking ourselves, um, operationally, organizationally, what, what is our role? What is Mm -hmm. the highest and best use of a, 
of an organization that's meant to serve the local food system, what's our, what's our new opportunity to continue to innovate mm-hmm. and support social impact entrepreneurs and farmers in doing what they do best mm-hmm. and staying focused on supporting, building the capacity of farmers to be better farmers, to have more resilient businesses and, and evaluating whether we organizationally should be in the business of running a farm right. or not. Right. right. And is that the best use of our skills, experience, time, philanthropic dollars? It's an interesting question about what we can do next. Yeah. I need to strengthen the system. Yeah. No. And I think it's been a thing with the nonprofit world. I mean, everybody wants to have an operating entity and a nonprofit. Yeah. Like, this is the thing, yeah. right? And it's going to get us out of the need to have to constantly fundraise when, in fact, there, it's not going to, especially when it's food and agriculture, it doesn't throw yeah. off a lot of cash to fund anything, right? I mean, other no, than what it it's doesn't. doing. <laughs> Absolutely. And we all know, as, as you pointed out, you know, food businesses, farms have such small profit margins that, that, they're, that you have to be a really good operator to be a successful, profitable farm or food business or aggregator. Mm-hmm. And so when you layer in mission, mission complexities and competing priorities for cash and resources, it's very easy to squeeze that enterprise um, and it's also that, you know, that kind of cash cycle that happens where dollars, philanthropic dollars are moving in to support the day-to-day operation of that business. Um, and so I think we've, we've talked a lot about how we can continue to help organizations think about, um, from a mission perspective, if they want to keep farmland active, if they want to keep farmers farming, what is the way for nonprofits to support that work, Mm -hmm. but also allowing the farmers that are singularly focused, dedicated, have the experience and the passion, how do we make sure they're the drivers of the operations and that nonprofit organizations are there continuing to kind of uh, be a few steps ahead and innovating and and breaking new ground. Yeah, and isn't that interesting? Because I would not, you know, like thinking about the institutions out there that are going to be the leader innovator people, I would not necessarily jump up and identify nonprofits, <laughs> right? Is, isn't but, it but different? But wouldn't it be nice if they were? I know. It, I get. Isn't I, it better? Aren't nonprofits in a better position to take risks? Yeah, you know, in, I I totally agree with that. It's just I I feel like that's a transformational idea, actually. Yeah, yeah. And and do you, when you work with nonprofits, well, do you get there. them to do it? <laughs> yeah, no, that's how we get transformation, right? Um, but when you when you do your work with nonprofits, do you see them stepping up that way? I mean, I think that what I see is. I mean, I think there's a scarcity of resources that makes it hard. You know, we're, we're chasing dollars. We're trying to, um, you know, we're trying to stay afloat. We're looking for, you know, we're continuing to look for ways to keep the, the organization thriving. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think that's a challenge because it's sort of like an everyday grind. But I do think when you, when you pose the question, 
to an executive director, a founder, a leader, even a board, when you pose the question of like, what is the highest and best use of this organization and how do we actually support the change that we are looking to see in our community? I think that, I think that there's an openness, um, but I think that there's a lot of work to be done. So I think right. the varying degrees is how, I think it's a, when we, when, when it's built into the organization that it's, that there's a process of change, that, that they evolve, that nonprofits get bigger and smaller and move out and contract based on the needs of the community that they're serving, then I see them become really agile and able to do that work. But it's a, it's a mindset shift and yeah. it doesn't work, in, especially in those big nonprofits that have been around for a long time mm-hmm. and that have, you know, a big payroll. Uh, it's, it's a lot harder to make that mind shift to be right. more innovative, take more risks and put themselves out there in a different way. Right. And I think it requires funders, the funders of nonprofits yeah. to change how they think too. Cause I, you know, like, like, I don't know, uh, along the way somewhere we decided that food hubs were going to be the answer to everything. And then every funder is funding food hubs work. And you know what I mean? It's like the, the, the um, herd mentality among the funders and yeah. foundations and uh, and I I just wonder how we could you know what could we do to change that right because I think that well, would I, help the nonprofits change. Yeah, because then what happens is is like the tide, you know, comes in and then the tide goes out and then all of that infrastructure that was created it sort of starts to starve, right? Right. It's, it's based on you know, it's based on external support. And so we're working on a project right now, which we're really excited about. And there's a lot of intersection and conversations happening um, up and down the Eastern seaboard. KTC is working on a project, um, a sort of phase one development of a transactional network of five food hubs in Vermont. Mm-hmm. So thinking about, and so we're, we're on the tail end of that project had our first retreat as a, as a team to think through operationally, tactically, like how can we work together to move more food? Mm-hmm. That conversation is also happening uh, regionally. So New England is having that con- a transactional network conversation, and so is the Mid-Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, you know, that's a, um, a response to a changing funding climate. Right, that the tide is going less out. Less interested in spending, you know, they they're looking at food hubs like, okay, now you exist, right? Um, what's the now you're now you're on your own, mm-hmm. right? Or what's the next iteration that makes you profitable or viable or in, able to continue to grow and meet the market needs? Mm-hmm. And so, it's a really it's really interesting because we built quite a bit of infrastructure, but are we having the impact? Are we moving the the amount of local food that we want to move that's source identified that's actually meaningful mm-hmm. at the at the farmer and the consumer level? Right. It's an it's a really interesting um, time. I think in in food distribution, mm-hmm. and I think Ted has given us. Uh, a lot of thought. He works so frequently in the center, you know, of the supply chain, but is the opportunity to integrate, you know, into 
uh, the the broader food system, right? And for, and that's what we've seen is that we've seen some acquisitions, so mm-hmm. bigger, broadline distributors buying smaller, specialty, locally focused mm-hmm. uh, for profit distributors, or is it about creating a separate supply chain that's value based mm-hmm. and transparent? Right. It's really interesting. It is. And when you talk about a um, transactional network, what do you mean by that? Like, what would that do? So that's about, um, I mean, I think that it's taking on a lot of forms, and I think the conversations that I'm seeing all look different. Okay. Um, But as it relates to Vermont, specifically the projects that I'm working on, um, first of all, the purpose of the project is to move it to sell more Vermont product, Mm -hmm. right? So that's a sort of clear, there's actually another transactional network in the Midwest that's based on food access. So it's really like what's Mm -hmm. the foundational Mm -hmm. premise. Um, But for the Vermont hub, it's really about, I have a farmer who has excess product X, and then the other food hub saying, I have a market for that. Mm-hmm. And what does that look like for us to be cross-stocking, for us to be able to be picking up from each other, suppliers? Um, what does it look like to share inventory, mm-hmm. to sell, sell amongst each other, to be backhauling for one another? So it's really about how are we making, how are we becoming more efficient mm-hmm. by working together and kind of closing some of those logistical gaps that happen when we're both transactionally focused and mission focused. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the the operational part of that, we're not as strong and lean as we might be if it's about a steak dinner, right? Right. As Ted always likes to say, if we if we're losing it, we know that when we have like laser focus on profitability, things tend to come into focus. Right. And when we layer in mission, it becomes more can be more Murky. complicated. And right. so this is. This is about, you know, are we, do we share a salesperson? Are Mm -hmm. we, you know, what platforms are we using for communication? So it's really, really tactical and focused on how do we move more products, both in the the network itself, Mm -hmm. and then also who's moving out to export markets, Mm -hmm. who's moving products out of Vermont into more populated areas. Right. And Ted, do you end up working with any food hubs too? Yeah, I work with a whole bunch of food hubs. Yeah, uh, that's kind of the the center of the of the marketplace. The supply chain is where my passion has really grown. I found that I think at the end of the day, a well run farmer in a, that niches themselves, um, you know, and knows how to do what they're doing, similar to the family cow, what they did with their dairy production yeah. and meat production, they got very good at it, mm-hmm. and ultimately they were able to be profitable. I think that you know, there's a lot of need for that help, but I. The supply chain to me is the piece of the uh, of the puzzle that is you know the most broken in the local foods world is how do you get that mm-hmm. local food into local mouths as quickly as efficiently as possible? Mm-hmm. So those food hubs are what does that? And yeah, I work with a number of them. Right, and and so you're you're on the East Coast where there are a lot more people than we've got in uh, in <laughs> a place like Wisconsin, right? And and so I think one of the the other things about the whole distribution thing is where you are in the country really drives what is a viable solution, right? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I I work with the Wisconsin Food Hub Cooperative here, and they ended up having to start their own trucking company because we have no trucking in rural America anymore since the the law changed about how long drivers can be over the road, right? Um, So they started their own trucking company, and the combination of that and the hub is now profitable. And it it took years, right? Um, Yep. And they're at about three million in sales. And guess what? We don't have enough people, so everybody gets annoyed because, or not everybody, but people get annoyed with them because they're taking product out of state. But if they weren't taking product out of state, we don't have enough people in our state, right? Yeah. So yep. getting real about what these look like, I think it's the, the right now is the time when that I see a lot of that reality coming into the picture. Or I they go away. A certain, scale. Mm-hmm. a certain scale where they can make money. And that $3 million is mm-hmm. kind of the, the three to five, you can make money. And then when you try to get to the five to 10, mm-hmm. you're sort of in no, no person's land, land, right? I mean, right. You, you, you've just, you've built, you've got to build this infrastructure and management team. I've got a, you know, a, a food hub I'm working with right now. And we pushed into the six and a half million dollar range mm-hmm. and it was horrifically bad. We brought it back down to the $5 million range. And it's better. Thinned out the management team, focused on where we, you know, mm-hmm. to grow to six and a half, we had to add two trucks. The trucks weren't full. The routes right. got bigger. The salespeople were spread thinner. They weren't as good. We've scaled it back. It, it, I can see clear in the Four and a half to five million dollar range, we will be nicely profitable. You push to six and a half, and mm-hmm. the the cost of the incremental infrastructure is impressive. Right, and and is this on the East Coast where there are a lot of people? It is. Yeah, yeah. So you're not. Are, is this um, route distribution or or not? I'm sorry. Is it what distribution? Like route route distribution. So going store to store, restaurant to restaurant, or yeah. going to DCs. Yes. Okay. No, no. This is direct. It, mm-hmm. This is a central. Food hub going right straight to the restaurants and to the mm-hmm. retailers. A little bit of to the, de- the central distribution, but the vast, I'd say, 80-plus percent of the distribution is mm-hmm. going right to the end restaurant consumer or the, you know, the store that is, you know, dropping right into the store, right. not into a D.C. Right, right, right. So, I mean, around the East Coast, I mean, one of the questions I have and I think a lot of people have is like, okay, so – these food hubs, like how many can we have that are going to actually work? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm, I, I think yeah. it's a good question, right? Because, because well, I don't know. Like Iowa did this this food hub manager training, and there and there were I don't I, around ten hubs in Iowa. Iowa only has three million people in the whole state. Right. So I, I think that's you know, part of the reason why you're seeing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, John. <laughs> I think that's why you're seeing those conversations about transactional networks and and consolidation of services and giving up. I mean, if you look at you know the red tomato model, where they're not where they're not owning their own trucking roots, right? Mm-hmm. They're literally ju- just move it, not just, but they're the ones that are selling product, right? And I think that that's I don't know, Ted. I feel like I'm seeing the the sort of there's the the micro hubs that are moving a, a small amount of product to smaller, um, you know, kind of a, a smaller customer. And then there's the, the ones that, that are getting bigger and working with bigger customers. But the middle is where I think there's 
where we're being challenged because they're just not focused enough on one customer. My, hypo- my hypothesis as I've worked with these organizations is, is that there's a first, the first hypothesis, there's sort of a size where you can be efficient and, you know, be lean and mean and get stuff done mm-hmm. and be in a niche. Right. But the second hypothesis is, is that the faster you can inject the local food production into the conventional supply chain, mm-hmm. back to your point, are they going direct to the store or the restaurant or are they going into a DC? It's the first mile logistics that are really, really tough to deal with when you're dealing with local smaller producers. It's just really tough to do that. But if you mm-hmm. can get that into the, into, the, into the conventional supply chain or mimic the conventional supply chain, um, that's, that's a really important piece. The other piece of these, these local food hubs it, that, that, you know, that I'm watching regularly is that, is that they, you know, typically a local food hub will end up with what we call shoulder months. If you're going to sell only local food. Right. Yeah, what do you do when right. you know, your produce is a better example? What do you do in those shoulder months? And mm-hmm. what you know, what I found is when those when those food hubs find the right balance of a local, regional, and then seasonal, it's really hard to be profitable when you're not profitable four to six months of the year just because you've made a commitment to local. So mm-hmm. I think there's also kind of a mission focus that has to shift a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that we're wa- I'm watching happening. The, the, the hubs that we work with that are able to produce, pro- you know, Family Cal is actually a really good example. Effectively, they're a hub, right? I mean, right, they are going effectively. Direct to consumer. Yep. They don't, they sell almost no produce. Like, right. they're just not doing that. Like, mm-hmm. have dabbled in it over the years, but they've always bought it from someone else, not produced it themselves, and they've made sure that it stays inside their profit parameters. Mm-hmm. Their, their, their difference in their sales uh, during the year is largely a function of, you know, people's eating habits mm-hmm. more so than it is the supply chain. I mean, they, you know, they grow chickens all year round and they freeze them, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, and then they then they forecast how much they think they're going to need. And so they can level out their, you know, they can keep their operations running. Some of these food hubs get really focused on, you know, the microcosm of local and then don't balance that out with profits, as Jen was talking about. Right. So it's, it's a very delicate balance. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. And and the local focus when you're based in a place where you don't have a lot of people is is <laughs> like, yeah, the death sentence, right? Like, mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. I, I had, I was talking to somebody um, in a, up in Minnesota uh, who was managing a, a farmer's market network, and I, I always I always encourage people to think about like what would it look like if you had values alignment and you worked with a hub or somebody who's in Georgia like what because they would be you would have peaches you could you know like you're suddenly you have corn like available three months earlier or whatever right it extends yep. everything right and and the faces I get when I suggest something like that, I just like I feel like okay, I'm I'm leaving the room now, right? Because it's like, oh, but no, that's not what we're about, you know. And I I see the struggle in people's faces over this, you know. I ha- I I have had the exact conversation with a client that I'm a virtual member of the team. Yeah, I've been there for two and a half years, and when I first said that two and a half years ago, I, you know, that was just about thrown out. Right. They are now sourcing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, uh, we have a, uh, an initiative called 52. Uh-huh. 52 weeks of the year. Right. We're going to make a profit. Right. Yep. So, 
it's now about transparency and understanding mm-hmm. who the farm is. It's not only about local. Yeah. I, I, it was interesting. So I, I have two kids who went to MIT, so I get their technology. can't remember what it's called. They're like monthly magazine comes to my house from MIT and the, the, um, top, the cover was living with climate change this month. And the last page of it had all the things that we get to improve for food production in a in a climate change planet, right? And the last one was really interesting because it said it was about local and it said, you know, a local is important and we got to beef that up, but we also have to realize that we are going to need to be raising food in the places where it makes sense because it's going to increasingly not be possible or not be ecologically possible in everywhere anymore. And it was like, huh, holy cow, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I look at us in in the upper Midwest, like like apparently we're starting to live it now, but apparently the climate change models have been saying for a while that what was going to happen here is really wet weather. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like Scotland around here now or something, you know, like the U.K. (laughs) Like, ugh. Same thing on the East Coast. Right, so. right. So, so that's going to change agriculture, right? We're going to have massive changes in agriculture coming, and it's coming faster than anybody thought. So, what an what an incredible time for nonprofits and for for all the businesses we work with, right? To have to figure out a plan to adjust for this adversity well, is opportunity, right? Yeah. And I think that's an opportunity at the farm level too to think about. Um, if farmers have the breathing room and the space, the head space, to think about what the opportunities for controlled environment growing are mm-hmm. in their community. Um, I think that's, as you said, that's such an incredible opportunity for nonprofit organizations and other kind of, you know, that next support, wing of support. I think an incredible opportunity for us to sit and I think even our work, too, in terms of thinking about how to model that, think about what the market opportunities are and how to quantify that. Right. And that's a lot of the work that the farmers are doing right now. And that mm-hmm. capacity building that we do through our educational programming, you know, through our workshops and things like that, that's the kind of toolbox that we feel that we, that's the tool, those are the tools that we can provide to that conversation right. that I think are really critical. Absolutely, because none of this works if they can't stay in business. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, which out here in the land of of um, traditional agriculture is not obvious anymore. It's interesting. I I had a call this morning with somebody who has 500 acres. So around here, this is not the West, right? So 500 acres is a lot around here, and a crop farmer, and he put in a distillery on his farm, um, and he said, you know, every spring. Like, I got to get out and plant before it starts to rain. And every spring we have a weather problem now. And I just don't know why I'm growing crom- commodity crops anymore. And I got it. Yeah. It's why I did this distillery on my farm. And it, it's so interesting because this is not small, dreamy people. This is pragmatic people who have been farming for a really long time who are suddenly doing weird stuff like a distillery. Well, that's what, I mean, that we, we're we doing a uh, countywide agricultural plan 
for a county here in Pennsylvania, which uh-huh. is a really interesting um, project of LSPP um, funded mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that struck our team the most, because we do work with a lot of really entrepreneurial farmers and mm-hmm. food makers, um, conventional farmers uh, and particularly farmers that have been not, this is not always true, but, um, but don't necessarily see themselves as entrepreneurs. No, they, they don't see themselves at all. as farmers. So yep. They're like, no, I don't really want to explore another sales channel. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. Right. I want to, I want to farm and I want one customer. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, and then I want to go back to farming. Right. And so I think, you know, we are all talented to, to support farmers in thinking about, um, what other opportunities are out there that can sustain right. active farmland yeah. and, 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 and the, um, and meet the market where it's at. Right. But clearly a distillery is meeting the market where it's at. Right. Well, sure. and you know, we have the highest per capita consumption of lots of different kinds of alcohol. We're number one in beer, <laughs> brandy, you know, like this is Wisconsin after all, right? Brandy. I guess I'm going to have to come visit that, Tara. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the old German thing, right? And then, like, yeah, yeah and the bowling alley with the old fashions, man. This is Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But uh, it is a shift, though, I, w- I would say, in the last couple of years. But certainly it's accelerated for me in the last year that it's these are big conventional farms who are now saying – the conventional thing is no longer working. It is it is yeah. irretrievably broken, and I need to be doing something different. So, um, and I've literally had farmers is that, look is at that, me and say, "I didn't realize I was an entrepreneur." <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. "Holy cow!" Yeah. Do you think that's being pushed purely economically, or is it also environmentally? I think it's mostly economic, but the environmental mm-hmm. thing and for farms for these big farms, the two are pretty intertwined, right? If they if mm-hmm. they can't if every spring becomes a problem at planting time, then they're gonna have a shitty season and then you add on top of it all the geop- geopolitical stuff and everything else going on right now, it's like, you know, am I gonna plant soybeans or not, right? I mean, who the heck knows right now? So getting more control over it, I think, is a big deal. But it is such a mind shift transformation to go from being a commodity producer who sells, you know, everything to one one and your goal, one customer and your goal is to make it whatever it is cheaper, (laughs) more of it and cheaper. Right. As opposed to, oh, my God, I got to market to consumers. And yeah, it's hard. And (laughs) and this distillery was um you know, it's been up and running for a year, and he's, like, frustrated. I'm like, you, you haven't even gotten started yet. I have no idea. You know, you have no idea what the potential of your business is yet. It's such a different well, thing, right? That's the opportunity I see in the middle of the supply chain is, like, when you see consumption of milk plummeting, fluid milk, but mm-hmm. consumption of cheese skyrocketing, right? Mm-hmm. So how are we how are we making sure that our manufacturing and our value add is, is meeting the customer and working with the farmer in a way that makes sense? Right. It's right. A re- I was just reading an article yesterday that 
50% of the, the corn. Don't quote me on this, and I don't have, I don't remember where I read it. Mm-hmm. 50% of the corn this year has not been planted yet because it's been. Oh, uh, I believe because it because it's been, too wet yeah. and too cold. Yeah, no, I. I, I mean, it, that's catastrophic. Yeah. For, yeah, I this is not going to be a good year around here. And, and yeah. you know, from what I understand from folks who who are more engaged with this than I am, it is kind of the new norm around here. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, and, and, you know, what happens then, people put in more drain tile, more water ends up in rivers. I, the Mississippi yeah. is flooding like crazy. Like, there's there's huge ramifications of all this that's happening already. And and in the middle of it are these farmers and food people who are trying to adapt their businesses, right? And Absolutely. That's, yeah, and that's why the work that you guys do is so important. Yeah. So um, what do you guys see for the future in, of KTC and the work that you do? <laughs> that's a great question. Uh <laughs> We'd like to grow this firm to about 50 people, serving about 500 people a year across the country. Uh-huh. We see the opportunity to do something like that and to stay in the, in the same kind of basic places where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, we've recently brought on a director of operations to help us build out our infrastructure. We're in multiple conversations with consultants to come on board with us. Um, and I think Jen and I both you know, come at it from a little different way, but we both pretty much hop out of bed every morning and are just excited. Oh, well, except for maybe the first 10 minutes. So I'm like, why the heck did I sign up for this? <laughs> before, the, before the caffeine hits or something, right. and I see a few rotten emails. But, um, you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, when, you, when you're an entrepreneur, part of what makes you tick is the passion of doing what you do. And, and, and for me, and I, and I think it's for Jen too, is, is that the ability for us to help people achieve their dreams but not make the same mistakes we may have made mm-hmm. is in, a, in an industry that we're passionate about and we believe in and makes a difference in more than just our pocketbook. Uh, I mean, that's, that's what I see the future of KTC. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Jen? I, I, think that, um, I think the most important thing that we um, – you know, Ted and I, so when Ted and I created Kitchen Table Consultants, I wanted to call it Kitchen Table Collective. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I bet you did, yeah. <laughs> I hate consultants. Uh-huh. And so, and, and, and I, I mean, obviously I joke when I say this because there's a lot of really talented consultants out there. But mm-hmm. I can tell you as someone that has, um, you know, as an operator that has struggled, that has been in pain, that... Um, there's something really unique about uh, about the members on our team, and I think, and I and I never want to lose that. And so I think um, Ted and I are both really committed to growing when and where it makes sense, mm-hmm. um, and growing with people who share the same no bullshit. Sorry, you have to. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to bleep that. Yeah, no, approach. actually, because we're a podcast, <laughs> we can get away with more. I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, I won't. Um, that's as far as I'll go. Mm-hmm. But I think that you know that um, idea that we have walked a mile in in their shoes, that we care deeply, that we are willing to do the work, and that we never. Um, 
you know, that we never take the approach that like, well, this is the plan and this is the deliverable and we're going to get, we're going to put the blinders on and we're going to get it done and we're going to take our check and we're going to move on to the next thing. And and I think that, you know, it's so important to us and to our team, frankly, that, that we stay really true to those core tenants and that we don't mess around with the culture and sort of the, the kind of the, the ethics of kind of our approach and and how seriously we take making sure that we're providing uh, providing that value to everybody that we work with, mm-hmm. and so that's equally as important to us. And we'll grow at the pace that we, you know, that is right based on um, based on on building that team and staying really true to that work. Yeah, and I I bet. I mean, uh, Ted mentioned that earlier his um, with one of the bigger clients that you did that you have a um, you you took some equity in lieu of compensation. Right. That that to me, that says a lot about how aligned you are willing to be with a company and their success. Right. Because that is like completely putting you in alignment with their success, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, because most consulting firms don't really have anything at risk, usually, right? They're, that's an unusual thing. Yep, that's true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. That's our well, we tenant, always try which to. Is, which is we're willing to win and lose with our clients. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's part of what we do. Right. And that, that says a lot about, about you guys and about um, – yeah, it just says a lot about the the values of the consulting organization. Um, and I'm assuming that you don't do that all the time. You know, there are places where that makes sense and where it doesn't. Yeah. No. Yeah. Jen, Jen gets mad at me regularly. I would, I would go on a limb a lot more often than I should. Uh-huh. Thank goodness for Jen. Right, but we want to be, yeah, and we want to be resilient and make decisions. I mean, it's, this is growing from a, you know, a two-person uh, you know, kind of a two-person, a partnership to mm-hmm. a broader collective, right? Mm-hmm. And and that means that we need to be good stewards of, mm-hmm. of the organization and of, I think people, our team relies on us and so do our clients. And so we're going to, we're going to continue to, uh, to challenge ourselves to do that and to do it in a way that makes sense for our growth. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's, that's important for us. Too. Right. 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 Well, we've covered a lot of ground. Have we missed anything? <laughs> I don't think so. Wow. I can't believe Ted and I didn't fight at all. But no, there you go. We can, we can arrange for that. <laughs> it's not over yet. <laughs> it's not Sarah. over yet. Uh, yeah. I mean, I do think, though, that the... Um, I mean, you do... The two of you are different in the sense of the your background and you know, kind of what the kind of work you do, though, in a lot of ways isn't like, you know, isn't that different? You both, as you said, you both get in and roll up your sleeves and do the nitty gritty work that needs to be done. And that 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 brings alignment to the two of you, I think. I think we're so I feel really lucky and fortunate, but I think, um, you know, philosophically, I think Ted and I are really aligned the way Mm -hmm. we, get, you know, where we want to go, we we both believe in how we would get there if we were driving the bus on our own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be very different. We would take different routes. But I think I think that's reflected in our team too. That that crosses over the kind of work that I do, the kind of work that Ted does. Like 
our team members do all of that work mm-hmm. and more. And so it's sort of like the the two halves of that uh, and how and our approach make make up a whole team, a really rich kind of environment for collaboration and um, for driving impact. Mm-hmm. And so that's the coolest part. To me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, how many? I think the, how the many coolest part do... for me is is that we trust each other completely. And yeah. I know she's got my back. Yeah. She's got I've got her back, and that mm-hmm. has allowed us a lot of flexibility in being able to to do the things that we do. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a huge lesson in that for everybody who's listening, who's in business with a partner, because um, I, you know, I think um, people people you start that you go into businesses with partners and and it's it's all it's all lovely in the beginning and then you go into it and I'm like oh my god this is like being married to this person like really yeah. we have to make decisions together all the time and, oh, <laughs> I get, you got to have a budget i mean all this stuff i have i have one extra added benefit in that partnership that my wife's name is also Jen oh so no <laughs> emails can periodically create really bad situations oh, for me. No. Oh, right. Right there. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, my goodness. You don't have to delete that. I'm totally fine with it. I didn't say anything explicit. No. See, now we're arguing. You 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 got some of that. It's really funny, though, because I remember when Ted and I first met, and um, Ted wrangled me into consulting, even though I was. You hated consulting. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he's like, I don't, I don't want to build this consulting firm alone. Like, I want to have a partner. I was like, oh, uh, you know, as a frustrated entrepreneur, I'm like, why? Like, get out of my way. Like, let's go. <laughs> I have a vision, right? And I have, you know, I have really come to see the benefit of having a partner, as Ted said, that you trust you know, implicitly. And, mm-hmm. but that's the only, that's the, I can't imagine doing it another way. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine doing it, having a partner that you, that you just don't feel like no matter what happens, the other person is going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And that's been transformative and, and is really important when you think about starting a business, which is hard, right. Mm-hmm. Or think about, bringing on another partner or kind of opening, you know, as you grow or change and thinking about entrepreneurs, we're so, we want control. We want to, we want to express our vision and expressing that vision becomes a lot easier when you're, when you're sharing the load right. with somebody that you well, trust. There's another, there's another piece of our partnership that, that I think is important for your listeners out there, Tara, is, is that Jen and I own exactly 50% each. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the, you know, if you listen to anybody consulting or lawyers, they always, they will tell you never be, do that. Right. Never yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think when we, when we formed kitchen table, it was clear that we trusted each other and that 50, 50 creates both an interesting and a great, I have yet to see it create a bad dynamic for us. And I think there's a lesson to be learned in that desire for control, mm-hmm. um, that, create that sets something up a dynamic that we don't have I mean, we know that we can stalemate and we don't mm-hmm. yeah right you and find a way through it. Other, yeah yeah mm-hmm. i it's i like a collective right, right? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> a small collective of two is what it is. Well, and the, room for more. Yeah, no, and I, I think the other, the other thing I tell folks is that I, I when I was in my CEO group, there was somebody in my group who um, took over his dad's um, electrical contracting firm when it was two trucks, right? Um, he, it's now over a billion dollars in annual sales national wow. firm, right? Along the, he sold it along the way to a public company who was running it into the ground. He bought it back with a group of investors. And he told me along the way, he said, you know, I would rather own, you know, 20% of a billion dollar company than a hundred percent of two trucks. Right. So and yeah. I'm like, Huh. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and, and I think there's a lesson in that for, you know, consultants are, a lot of them are lone wolves, right? Like, like to be out there working on their own, you have control, it's all you kind of thing. But, but you never, you never have the opportunity for leverage and getting any bigger than what you can do then, right? Yeah, yep. you never have the benefit of an extraordinary team of people mm-hmm. that are always there to support you. Like the, I mean, the team that we have is just like I'm every day. I'm like, wow, I can't believe right. we were able to, you know, to um, to kind of collect this group of people and provide them a platform that's meaningful for their work, where they have freedom and control, but they also have support from us. Mm-hmm. They have, you know, and they have each each other and it's like this this just great incubator for ideas and mm-hmm. I mean it's just such a rich experience I don't I don't think I mean I've never been a solo consultant but I don't think I'd ever want to be because mm-hmm. I think I think my work is so much richer and um, more meaningful for the client as be, being a part of that team mm-hmm. I would never be able to try drive the value that I drive without the rest of the team. Right. And do you, I mean, with your team members, do they share in the success financially or, you know, are they, are they all employees or how do you do that? So we run a mix of employees and subcontractors depending on what, you know, they kind of want. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Employees all have uh, profit sharing bonus opportunities. Uh, subcontractors have the opportunity to, um, you know, when they're doing a great job on a project to earn more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and pretty much you get the choice of what sort of things you do and you don't work on. Mm. Um, so it's kind of a, you know, I mean, it's a collaborative yet, um, you know, entrepreneurial environment. Right, right. And, and, you know, in the last year or so, we've started to shift kind of our approach on those things a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the next, as we, you know, we've made this commitment to growing, um, I think you're going to, we're going to see a lot more. I mean, I've, I spent a lot of time thinking about how, you know, shared equity, um, you know, shared upside, how, you know, how we more deeply engage mm-hmm. our, you know, our team members. Cause they're really, you know, part and any company, the greatest asset they have are their people. Right. I mean, ours is most definitely is right. right. That's what we're selling. It's yeah. purely ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was the other thing. The uh, Roly is the name of the guy with the electrical contracting company. That was the other thing you told me was Tara. It's all, it's all about the team and building the team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been fabulous to chat with you guys today. 
Thank you, Tara. Appreciate it. Of course. Um, and um, we'll be in touch, I, you know, because I suspect there's going to be more coming from KTC in the future. <laughs> there will be. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. All right. Have a good weekend. Thanks so much. Of course. Yeah, you too. Yep. Take right. care. Yep. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. Thank you.